Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And I'm Chris. And we're the Film Flamers. And this month we're continuing our adventure into hell. That's right. We're explorers of another realm. And we can no longer distinguish between pleasure and pain. That's right. So we're talking about Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. That's right. (laughs) Hellbound, Hellraiser 2 is a 1988 horror film directed by Tony Randall and written by Peter Atkins based on the original story idea, of course, by Clive Barker, who also served as the film's executive producer. Claire Higgins, Ashley Lawrence, and Sean Chapman reprise their roles, or as you would say, reprise. Reprise. And Doug Bradley returns as Pinhead. Kenneth Cranham and Imogene Borman join the cast in major supporting roles. The sequel focuses on Kirsty Cotton and her admittance into a psychiatric ward whose sadistic head doctor unleashes the Cenobites, a group of sadomasochistic beings from another dimension. Composer Christopher Young returned to complete the score, making it more bombastic and even incorporating the Morse code for the word God for the Leviathan, God of the Labyrinth. Okay, listeners. Your suffering will be legendary, even in hell. This is Hellraiser 2. <laughs> the vision is renewed. The power is reawakened. The fear is reborn because they have returned. Time to play. Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Brace yourself for terror you have never imagined. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. And horrors you can never escape. And you wanted to know. Now you know. Last year, they brought hell to earth. Now, they'll take you through hell. In the past, British military officer Elliot Spencer, played by Doug Bradley, has found the Lament Configuration puzzle box within the ruins of some nameless, war-torn country. 
he manages to open it and is transformed into the Cenobite Pinhead. In the present, shortly after her father is killed by Frank Cotton and the Cenobites have taken their revenge, Kirstie Cotton is admitted into a psychiatric hospital, interviewed by Dr. Chenard, played by Kenneth Cranham, and his assistant, Dr. Kyle McRae, played by William Hope. She tells her account of the events, and upon hearing of the bloody evidence left behind in the wake of her hellish experience, pleads with them to destroy the bloody mattress her murderous stepmother, Julia Cotton, died upon. After hearing Kirstie's story, Dr. Chenard, who is secretly obsessed with the Lament configuration and what scraps of Cenobite mythology he has found over the years, has the mattress brought to his home and convinces a mentally ill patient, Mr. Browning, to lie on it. As part of his ailment, the patient thinks that he is covered in maggots, and Dr. Chenard gives him a straight razor to cut them off. The resulting blood frees a skinless Julia, played by Claire Higgins, from the Cenobite dimension. Dr. McRae, having snuck inside Dr. Chenard's house, based upon his prior suspicions, and to investigate Kirstie's claims, witnesses the event and flees in terror and disgust. At the asylum, Kirstie meets a young patient named Tiffany, played by Imogene Borman, who demonstrates an amazing aptitude for puzzles. Later that night, Kirstie is awakened in her room by a vision of her skinless father who tells her in writing that he's in hell and he needs her help. Dr. McRae arrives back at the hospital and informs Kirstie that he now knows her story to be true. He brings her some clothes to wear, and the two leave the hospital, deciding to return to Dr. Chenard's house to stop whatever sadistic slut slaughter is happening there. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile... Dr. Chenard, seduced by the sultry, skinless Julia, has brought more mentally ill patients to his home for her to feed on and regenerate. Kirstie and Dr. McRae arrive at Dr. Chenard's home, but it's too late. Dr. McRae is killed by a now fully regenerated Julia, and Kirstie is knocked unconscious. Dr. Chenard and Julia kidnap Tiffany from the asylum and force her to unlock the Lament configuration so they can enter the labyrinth-like world of Pinhead and the Cenobites. They enter, followed by Kirstie, who brings the Lament configuration with her. Pinhead and the other Cenobites find Kirstie and tell her she's free to explore before they prey on her flesh. Elsewhere in the labyrinth, Julia betrays Dr. Chenard and leaves him to be transformed into a Cenobite by the Leviathan, god of the labyrinth, and pain. Kirstie encounters Frank Cotton in the labyrinth, who reveals that he tricked her into coming to hell by pretending to be her father. Julia appears and destroys Frank in revenge for killing her, allowing Kirstie to escape. A vortex opens within the labyrinth, and Julia attempts to pull Kirstie and Tiffany into it. She's sucked in instead, leaving only her skin behind. Kirstie and Tiffany attempt to escape, but are ambushed by Dr. Chenard, now having become a particularly powerful Cenobite. Kirstie and Tiffany flee, only to run into Pinhead and the other Cenobites. Kirstie shows Pinhead a photograph of Elliot Spencer that she took from Dr. Chenard's study, and he gradually remembers that he was human. Suddenly, Dr. Chenard appears. Pinhead and the other Cenobites attempt to fight him, but Chenard easily overpowers and kills them all, returning them to their pre-Cenobite human forms. Dr. Chenard traps Tiffany, but before he can have his filthy way with her, Julia suddenly appears, complete with skin and evening gown, to flirt with the demonic doctor. The distraction gives Tiffany enough time to once again solve the lament configuration, killing Dr. Chenard. Kirstie reveals that it was her wearing Julia's skin all along. Ew. 
And she and Tiffany escape the hellish labyrinth, leaving the sad sack of skin in her killer evening dress behind forever. Later, two moving men are removing Dr. Chenard's belongings from his home. One is pulled inside the mattress, and the other witnesses a mysterious, gory altar rise from within it. The end. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Whatever sadistic slut slaughter is happening there. <laughs> oh, my God. Hellraiser 2 premiered at the Toronto Film Festival on September 9th, 1988. It officially opened in New York and L.A. on December 23rd, 1988, just in time for Christmas celebrations, and it started wider release in the weeks following. The film was a co-production of Great Britain and the U.S., and but it has a reported budget of three million pounds, which is much larger than the first installation. As the popularity of the first film had risen, the sequel was expected to have a more successful box office. However, unable to stop the box office juggernauts Twins, Rain Man, and The Naked Gun, Hellraiser 2 opened at the number 10 spot. Opening weekend, ultimately the movie would gross about $13 million worldwide. Much like the first film, Hellraiser 2 was initially given a rating of X by the MPAA, but with cuts, New World, the production company, was able to secure an R rating. An uncut version was eventually released on home video. I haven't seen that. Maybe we did. Maybe. Hellraiser 2 has a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of 58%. The site's consensus reads, Hellbound Hellraiser 2 retains the twisted visual thrill of its predecessor, although seams in the plot are already beginning to show. Chris Willman of the LA Times wrote, This follow-up is faster and campier than its most somber predecessor, but the basic grim tenets of British horror author Clive Barker's supernatural worldview are still intact. Mm. Marjorie Ebert had more to say about this franchise. He called this film simply a series of ugly and bloody episodes strung together one after another like a demo tape by a perverted special effects man. Variety was, pre- Variety was pretty clear of what it thought of Hellraiser 2, calling it a maggoty carnival of mayhem, mutation, and dismemberment, awash in blood, and recommended only for those who strive on such junk. Amen. I know. <laughs> no tears, Variety. <laughs> it's a waste of perfectly good ink. <laughs> so it does have some accolades, or one accolade, really. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Horror Film, Best Supporting Actress for Claire Higgins, but it won for Best Music. Oh, other noms for Best Horror Film that year include Beetlejuice, which won, Child's Play, Dead Ringers, Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, and Waxwork. Another big year. And the director of Waxwork went on to direct part three of the Hellraiser series. I guess they were pumping out those Nightmare on Elm Streets, right? Because the previous year had uh, the Dream Warriors. That's right. I mean... And of course, of course, this was, you know, Hellraiser was the year before too. So Hellraiser 2 must have been really greenlit fast. It was. I feel like at this time, if it was a successful horror movie, they were going to pump them out year after year. Yeah. And they did. I mean, like I'm right on street on to like part five and six was like one year after the other. So it must have been... um, Halloween 3 season of The Witch was the previous year, Uh and it didn't get nominated then. 
No. I mean, well, that, there was several years between Halloween 3 and Halloween 4. Okay. They finally brought Michael Myers back. They're like, we have got to make some money, so we're not going to do what we did with the last yeah, one. Yeah, so. that makes sense. Child's Play, though, that's good. And Dead Ringers is an amazingly creepy movie. I love it. Mm. I find it, I mean, and Beetlejuice is great, you know, but I don't know that I would pick that as a winner as best. I wouldn't film. even classify it as, it's like horror adjacent. Yeah, best, it's you know? like a horror comedy. Yeah. So, I don't know. Comedy horror, yeah. So uh, let's talk about the background a little bit. Okay. So I feel like the the consensus here is that there's a feeling of missed ambition, right? And this whole series is ambitious. We talked about that a little bit last week. Yeah. That this the series gets more and more ambitious before it just falls apart. And I want to say that for this film, it can be attributed to a number of factors, right? Okay. So the script called for and was due to have a much larger budget, but it decreased after financial issues separate from the film with New World Pictures. And the production design had to get pretty scrappy pretty fast, right? Because yeah. this happened like, oh, by the way, your budget's like half. <laughs> and you can tell through some parts of this movie. <laughs> Sorry. So also Andrew Robinson, of course, who played, uh, I guess, Larry. Yeah. Uh, the father from the first yeah, movie father. was going to come back as a major thing. Like it was actually going to be him in hell asking for help, I'm assuming. And, um, but he refused to reprise his role. And so, you know, I, I guess he was on board or said he might, he might, but just didn't sign the dotted line at the end of the day and didn't want to do it. And so, you know, uh, that forced a lot of hasty script rewrites. And so I think that might account for some of the, the muddled story structure of, of this film. Yeah, I feel like like they they wanted to go in a direction, but sort of keep some of the central cast or at least story to like continue going. I think I read somewhere online too that uh, after after this movie, they wanted Julia to be the main antagonist as far as like Hellraiser goes, but she refused to do any movies after Part Two, and so Pinhead sort of like took over as the main villain throughout everything else. Yeah, but okay. eventually they they wanted Julia to like be like the villain. Yes, Hellraiser. Yeah, no, no doubt. So you want to talk about some of the cast, even though I think we already have a lot in the other one. Yeah, Claire Higgins is back. Obviously, she's like super bitch in this. Yeah, I I, I love her. We'll talk her, about her a little bit more. Um, um, Ashley Lawrence is back as as Christy Cotton. Uh, Kenneth Crenham is new um, as a as Doctor Shenard uh, or the Shenard Cenobite. Both of them, although like the only reason he joined was because I think it was his his son or his nephew, which just like bugged him until he would do it. Really, because he loved the first movie so much. I mean, that's a good reason to do it. And he got a lot of things to do in this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is like the epitome of a creepy like doctor, right? Who's a doctor for all the wrong reasons, maybe, but he clearly has some sort of like interest in the occult or at least like rough sex. He's like a standard for like Mingala for me. He's like very yeah. like, you know, he's like that serious, you know, psychological insurgent doctor, you know, but also is um into like the occult. And so that tells that screams at me like like the the pop culture Nazi. You know what I mean? Yeah, Nazi yeah, scientist. Yeah. I um I, I do think that as a Cenobite he is both like fun and like eye rolling. I don't know. I mean, and I'm sure that we'll get into that, but I feel like this, this actor has a lot to do in this movie. He gets to do a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, chew on the scenery, you know, a limited buffet for him. And we have also Imogene Borman as Tiffany, sort of like the mute, uh, patient at the, uh, psych hospital. Who's good at puzzles. Yeah. First I thought she was kind of a standard for like autism. Um, but later I think it's just saying that, 
that it's because she has suffered some trauma based yeah. on what the doctor has done to her mother mm-hmm. who dropped her off. That wasn't really fleshed out. It was kind of hinted at that she dropped her off. And then he saw like the potential for solving the, the limit configuration. And so he like, he wanted to keep her and killed off the mom. How incredibly convenient for the story though, that we have somebody who can solve puzzles pretty quickly. I, I guess. I mean, I mean, they didn't need it in the first one. Right? I know. So, can know. she solve them faster than the people did in the first one? Cause they seem to do it in seconds. Yeah. And they're just like pointed at someone. And pray so she just best. has to look at it and she's like, there. <laughs> Done. Ironically, she's the one that takes the longest to solve it. I don't ever. You're right. <laughs> Come on, Tiffany. <laughs> And again, we have Doug Bradley as Pinhead, but we also get to see him in this movie as his former human self, Captain Elliot Spencer. Yeah, and we mentioned this last week, but he looks so different. Yes, I just you like, would never have picked him out of a crowd to be a horror icon. You know what I no. mean? He looks like this like regular Joe. Every time they show that like still photo of him in his like military uniform, I'm like, there's no way that's Pinhead. And then he shows up on screen. I'm like, I can maybe see it a little bit, but the makeup is still so damn good. You just can't. Maybe because the like striking thing about him is his eyes, his bright blue clear eyes. You know, yeah. and then they cover that up with like pitch black, like sclera contacts, mm-hmm. you know, and so he looks completely different. We also have Sean Chapman and Oliver Smith back playing two different versions of Frank. Yeah. Like just like the first one, um, Oliver Smith, I guess, was thinner or something, even though like Frank, the guy that's playing Frank, Sean Chapman is really thin to begin with. Yeah. So I guess whoever can do the monster makeup, I don't know why they did that. But at least this time he gets to be makeup less, kind of, mm-hmm. with the maggot ridden, or at least in his head, maggot ridden, <sighs> uh, you know, psycho that he puts on the bed to, and gives a straight razor. I feel like we've talked about maggots before in a deep dive. I think it was Suspiria, right? Yeah, where they were throwing rice down on the on the actors, but you hate the close-ups. Yeah, I yeah. hate maggots. I hate maggots so much. They're so disgusting. And there's maggots in the first one and lots of maggots in this one. And I'm like, mm, no, I just can't do it. It makes me so sick when I see them. But that's not when you put down your ice cream. You put down your ice cream during the resurrection scene. In the first well, one. I think that after that first maggoty scene, like in the kitchen of the first one, I was hungry and I went and got some ice like, cream. Oh, and hmm, then- I need sprinkles now. <laughs> I just fucking hate maggots. I hate it when I see them on screen. Just director, stop doing that. It's effective, but really fucking nasty. But rounding out our cast, we have William Hope as Dr. Kyle McRae, kind of the good guy that doesn't last long, but he serves a purpose. And you might be familiar to some of you who have seen aliens. He's in aliens. Yeah. He's uh, the Lieutenant who hasn't (gasps) done. Yeah. He's the Lieutenant. Everyone hates that has the head injury. Oh my God. And then at the end with Vasquez, he holds the grenade or whatever. Right. I didn't even recognize him. Yup. That's him the year before this. Yeah, he, he does really. 86. He does die really fast in this movie because feel, I feel like they set this character up and then it's like not even halfway through the movie. I'm like, oh, they killed Kyle. I'm like, yeah. Mm. Yeah, he just dies like boom. Yep. Yep. So I have some notes. I don't okay. Know, this is going to be a quick conversation. There's not really much to mine here other than the ambition of showing two different worlds, you know? Uh, obviously, we, we, have, we are familiar with our setting. You know, she's back in the asylum, you know. <laughs> I guess a different one with a different doctor. I don't fucking know. Uh, We have the house. There's not much to be done on earth in this case, really. It's it's most of this movie is is in hell, right? And there's a reason why it's called Hellbound. Yeah. I mean, so they're obviously taking this to the next, next step in the, in the story. We've already seen what can happen when you summon the Cenobites to earth, but obviously people want to know more about them, right? I feel like the Cenobites were kind of a standout in that movie and they really like intrigued people, especially those who had not read the source material. Yeah. And like the people who made this movie, rightfully so, wanted to explore like, 
more about the Cenobites, where they live when they're not like summoned out of the box, maybe how they were created, things like that. And I feel like this movie really just like takes us and puts us into their their turf, really. It does. And what's interesting to me is they're really setting up the mythology that this is not a typical like Judeo-Christian hell. Yes. Right. This is much, it's almost like Greek-like in exactly. a way where everyone has a kind of like Hades-like personal hell. There's a labyrinth, you know, the environment itself, you know, is something that can be explored. But, you know, obviously there's a lot of pain and pleasure and, and torture involved. And there is a god of the labyrinth, the god of pain, the Leviathan, which is basically just this giant, I don't know, like, you know, anti-monolith from 2001, a space odyssey mm-hmm. or something floating in the sky. Well, I mean, it's, I guess it's supposed to be like a version of the box. You know what I mean? Like yeah. It's, it's one thing and then it's another when but the box is open or closed. It's more uh, triangular. Yeah. You know what I mean? In uh, what's like isosceles or something. I don't fucking know. <laughs> like some um, fucked up diamond. <laughs> yeah, some fucked up diamond. And uh, I feel like if they had wanted to, they would have made it the box. And they did at the very end mm-hmm. to show that they were like closing all the doors forever. Although I kind of like the idea of that too. They, they could have also made it some sort of like ultimate god or satan or something a stand-in for satan to be you know sort of at the at the end of the labyrinth but they don't it's sort of like this tangible but not exactly omniscient thing kind of an unknowable yeah situation right like Like it obviously is controlling things are you looking at something that you can fully understand or is this just what is something in physical reality that is representational of something else and i feel like that's a big chunk of the big chunk of this movie is like the understanding of what people are looking for right because dr dr chenard is always saying like i want to see that's it's what he wants to do mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily want to experience he just wants to know right like any good see? wait wrong movie <laughs> <laughs> so Samuel i mean again they just like they're they're walking through the labyrinth together he and julia and they get to that point and she's like this is my god and <laughs> you know and then he goes, oh, <laughs> for the first of many times, his operatic scream in this. And, you know, she's like, I, I brought you to them. Right. And so we get to sort of see how Cenobites are created at that particular moment. Yeah, it's oddly physical. It's oddly surgical. I would have expected to be a little bit more spiritual or metaphysical, but there's like needles and shit. They're like, it's almost like... um uh post-mortem you know they're sucking all the blood out and putting the oh, blue yeah. liquid in you know what i mean like it's, embalming yeah it's, yeah it's basically they're they're embalming these people because they do there's one thing that's sucking the blood out and one that's putting some sort of blue liquid in that makes you a cenobite yeah and it's coming out of the box and i'm like mm, i don't i don't know like that stupid box cardboard box elevator that comes up to that box <laughs> i don't fucking know that's part of the problem here right it's super ambitious the ideas the setting super ambitious just showing the leviathan there right in the brief moments that we get to see it it's all there but they couldn't really come across with that lower budget and things are happening with each of these movies where the budget gets reduced or the script rewrites happen or people drop out you know and so it's like this this series is played with things like this where the ideas are there and the ambition is there but the execution is not quite what it really needs to be to be as good as it could have been no, I mean, and I agree with you. I feel like I feel like him becoming a Cenobite is a really cool moment in this movie, right? Because he gets put into that box. We have those like wires like cutting into his face, and he sort of turns into a Cenobite of what's deep inside him, right? Like he is already a crazed mad scientist. We can see that from like the bottom levels of his psychiatric hospital, right? And what he does to his patients or allow them to do to themselves. And so it sort of turns him into the mad doctor that he's always been, right? I kind of wish 
that we can see these other Cenobites and why they became what they were. It's interesting because they do show them as he kills them, turning back into their original human forms. Right. Some of them are kind of normal and some like one of them, like the chatterer, I think, ended mm-hmm. up being a, a small child. Uh, yeah, a little boy. Yeah. You know, and I want to know why. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that's really untapped. And I kind of wish that like the franchise would go in that direction. You know what to I mean? me, it means every one of these people ended up opening the, the limit configuration at some point in their lives, whether it be, you know, 10 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, including that little boy. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. Yep. You know? So, I mean, but I, I want to know why he's a chatterer. You know what I mean? Maybe because he was so fucking shit-faced frightened. Oh, it's that true. he was chattering his teeth and shaking. That's I good. Know. I like it. We can make up our own stories, I don't too. I well, mean, we, we're going to have to. I know. There's, just, <laughs> <laughs> there's not much going on here outside of like some, some vague visual storytelling here. Decisions yeah. were made, right? And so I think that they were intentionally made. They didn't put a kid in like sadomasochistic leather for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just do like the Cenobites, you know, and I, like there are some parts in this movie that I wish they would have just paid a little bit more attention to them. Produced by Nambla. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. I'm the daddy. <laughs> Who gave him that fucking box? <laughs> this is the worst birthday present ever. <laughs> God damn it. What's your pleasure, child? <laughs> What's your pleasure, child? <laughs> Connect more. <laughs> okay. I think that we can all agree, though, that British Meg Foster really, like, just steals the fucking show in this. Jesus Christ, I love her line in this. Like, I'm not the wicked stepmother. I'm the evil queen. <laughs> I mean, yes, bitch. It's a for real. <laughs> it's such a huge departure from the first movie. I mean, we talked in the last episode about how she sort of like comes into her own as a villain in the first Hellraiser. Kind of tragically, you know yes. what I mean? Because she's killed like on accident in a way and she gets sucked in. And now she's like, I'm taking the reins. You know what? Mm-hmm. She's for the first time. She has agency, really. Yep. In this story. And she has plans, right? She takes revenge on Frank just from coming across him, rips his heart out and says, not personal. Right. <laughs> Right, as revenge, you think she's she's tr- she would try and hide from the Cenobites, same as Frank. And I was like, why is she not trying to hide? Why is she bringing this guy back? Why is she willing to walk into hell so freely? And it's because she's actively working with hell for mm-hmm. hell. You know, I, I, I don't know what promises there were or why she's doing that or what her motivations were. But for some sort of trade and power, you know, she's not made into a Cenobite. Nope. You know, but she she gives that guy as a new denizen or, or lord of hell. And she gets to kind of be her own thing, I guess. She can just saunter around this hell world or whatever and do what she wants and pray to her diamond god. Diamonds are forever. And just be evil, right? Be the evil queen. And she does. I mean, she's super campy in this movie, and I fucking oh, yeah. love it. I mean, like, she's the best part of this movie, for sure. I like Ashley Lawrence a lot more in this movie than the first. She's a little bit more fleshed out. She's a little more of an attitude, you know? She doesn't uh-huh. have patience. Um, and I do have to say, like, my first Oh My God moment in this was in this movie, Oh, kind of opens. Um, after the stupid, like, recap that happens <laughs> in the God. beginning um, that's needless. But uh, as soon as I saw her, I was like, oh, my God, she's a dead ringer for Winona Ryder in this. Like, she looks like Winona Ryder. Fuck me gently with the chainsaw. What happened between the first and the second? I think it's the hair. Yeah, you're right. She does look a little bit like Winona Ryder. She didn't as much in the first one. No. it was. I'd never thought that. In the second one, I was like, holy shit, is that Winona Ryder? Do they recast? And I'm like, no, it's her. So... 
Interesting. Mean, a lot happened in that year for her too, but you're right. They do flesh that character a little bit more. And I feel like she has a little bit more to do. She has a clear goal in mind to save her father. Right. Yes. And that was a script rewrite because she doesn't get to do that. Right. She was tricked. And so there's less in it for her other than just like getting there. Oops. And then escaping, you know, and that's one of the kind of the missteps, right? There's no, so what to any of this really. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and so like she, she is there, and has been tricked and has to like find her way out of hell. Right. I think like one of the, one of the best parts of this movie though, is when she sort of goes into Frank's personal hell, although we don't know it's Frank's at the time. Yeah. And all those like, like slabs are coming in and out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> With like moaning. That's another thing. There's like some weird shit going on. Like she just takes one of the, like the shrouds from one of those people that were moaning, throws it on the fire and he's like, no. And then he bursts into flame. I'm like, Oh my God, what just happened? Like, why was that important? Because I was watching this and I'm sort of into it, you know, and then, <laughs> and then they make these really random turns and I was she just, just like, summarized the entire series. I'm sort of into it. <laughs> sort of. Mostly. Sort of. Mostly. Not fully. Mostly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but like, I feel like someone was really on some like really good drugs and they were just like, you know what would be cool? Let's have these labs that come in and out with moaning women, but the women aren't really there, you know? But yeah. I mean, it fits like Frank's personal hell, right? Like things that he wants but can't touch. We get it. Yeah. You know? But he's again skinless in hell. Yeah. And, and still wants to fuck his niece in hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I I don't know. I feel like they didn't even need to have him come back at all. But I guess they had the actor lined up. So Yeah. I, I think it was maybe part of the rewrite maybe is yeah. to get her in, you know, to get Kirsty in there. Um, was originally going to be the dad and they probably replaced him with that with Frank with Frank and then it also gave Claire Higgins you know Julia something to do as far as like showing her agency and say like now I'm the master you know what I mean Mm -hmm. Uh, so do you want to talk about whenever that vortex opens and they're all holding on for dear life? <laughs> and her skin comes off. And her skin comes off and just falls out in a little pile of like on the floor. It looked like her too still. I was like, holy shit. I've seen skin piles before in horror movies, but this one, that was a dead ringer. They did a good job. That's right. Oh my God. <laughs> what artistry. I recognize those hooded eyes anywhere. <laughs> I don't know. It just came off super easily. And I feel like she regenerated herself. Like. People are just skinless all the time I know. in this universe. I don't, I don't, I don't know what that says. It's like, is it like raw nerves? It's like you can experience pain and pleasure without your skin more. Or I don't, I don't think that's a thing. Like if you're just musculature, it kind of runs counterintuitive to what the whole point of the place is, right? Yeah, because I feel like most of your like even the Cenobites have fucking skin. You know that's right. I mean? Some of it's peeled off. There's a line in the first artistically. Movie where- <laughs> There's a line in the first movie where Frank like stops her. He's like, I'm hurting. I feel pain. He's super happy about it because his skin is growing back or whatever. And I'm like, yeah. And I, maybe it's, I think it should really be for Frank specific, right? Because he's really into that. And so his personal hell would be feeling nothing. Yeah. Right. I don't know. I feel, I mean, like, I We're think. really filling some voids in here. <laughs> We're doing some heavy lifting. We kind of have to. I mean, like this movie is artistically need to look at you know but i i feel like roger ebert is right i think it feels like a series of vignettes a little bit like now we're in this portion and now we're in that portion and now's the time for the evil doctor yeah you know but um the the greater chunk of the end of this movie is that evil doctor like chasing them 
and then having this ultimate showdown with those Cenobites. You know, and, and it's not that bad. It kind of fits the movie having such wide brush strokes with mm-hmm. not a lot of detail or depth. You know, it's like a mile wide, but an inch deep type of situation. And it is supposed to be kind of surreal once you get there, because once they are there, everything's a little bit less grounded. And I think it's part of its ambition. Um, you know, it's bringing in this gray Lovecraftian vibes versus like the black and white good versus evil theme. Uh, I think it goes from like pure erotic horror to and translates to or transitions to cosmic horror or even dark fantasy in this yeah. one. You know, and we get that there's sort of a metaphysical quality yeah. about this. You know, there's revelations that like the Cenobites were once human, mm-hmm. you know. And I mean, yeah, I, I feel like. I think ambition is right. I think when you say that, like, I, I feel like they, they had high hopes for this movie and I'm not sure that it really translated well for whatever reason. No, when know? they're bouncing off the walls in the labyrinth, the, the walls bounce back. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> budgetary constraints aside, I mean, you're right. When you f- like throw yourself into a brick wall, the brick wall should not bounce back with you. So yeah. if and I was these- stuck in a labyrinth, I'd be that much more angry if it was just made of cardboard. <laughs> like any sort of like haunted attraction. <laughs> right? You're like, fuck this shit. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, this movie is simultaneously good, and there there are things that I I dislike about it fully. So I don't know. It's hard to put my finger on sometimes. So without the benefit of knowing that there would be sequels, right? If I'm right, if in my memory, and I've literally just watched this movie, <laughs> Pinhead and the Cenobites die, right? And they're not brought back again after that. They don't come back, right? That's it. And when they're killed and they're returned to their human form, did audiences think that Penhead was dead and they were setting up, you know, um, Claire Higgins as the main bad guy moving forward? I mean, I guess so. But I also got from it that she was fully dead, too. She was. I mean, when you die in hell, are you dead? I mean, like, no, I mean, I feel like any of these Cenobites can probably come back to life. I don't know. That was silly. Having a fight to the death with otherworldly creatures who already seem completely immortal. Right. Yeah. Is is silly to me. Like, I they just and, and also like those four Cenobites work so well together in tandem. And then we have one that they just don't like for whatever reason. Is he too sadomasochist? I mean, like, do they have a line? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. They just didn't like him. And so they were fighting him, I guess. But it, well, I think it's like a paradigm shift, right? So you've got like, like we, I feel like we actually get more context later in the series. Like, with um Genevieve or Angelique or whatever the hell her name is. <laughs> Angelique. Yeah, yeah. In Bloodline. You mm-hmm. know, she's she's like represents the old hell where it's all about seduction, temptation, you know, all that stuff and the 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 slow um, you know, whatever it's called, crouch towards Bethlehem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you know what I mean. I know what you mean. And uh in the it was supposed to be really antagonistic in that movie between Pinhead and the Cenobites and her, right? Because they are the new organized, efficient, straight to the point of pain and pleasure of hell versus um, I think this new one was all about heightening that to the next level and getting even more creative, you know, and experimenting into new transformations and experiences in hell itself. And I feel like all of these are different paradigm shift generations of Cenobites hell evolving itself. Well, and also I guess you could say, and this is probably a reach that's really editorialized, you know, onto this movie, but, but that's okay. I have the benefit of having watched a lot of these, you know what I mean? This is what a podcast is for though. I mean, editorialized. (laughs) I mean, cause like I'm going to do it right now. I feel like, like the, the doctor, the evil Cenobite doctor was 
pleasuring himself, right? I mean, so to, to an extent, you know? Like, he really was just killing people, like, immediately. There was no... I think the Cenobites truly believe that they are providing some pleasure to people, right? Even though they're killing them. That's right? the original intent of them, I think. Right. But and this guy was just like, you know what? There's people here. I'm just going to kill them. And It's like they can't decide whether they're going the more satanic route versus the Lovecraftian route yeah. from movie to movie. You know, and they just can't really decide. And I think that's from people not really getting the material that get behind these movies from a studio. You know I, what I mean? I agree. I completely agree with you. Cause I, f- I feel like having watched this one and having watched a couple and, and having to say like, this is not really a satanic kind of thing. Like I think calling it Hellraiser was probably a really bad idea because it sort of sets up the idea that these are satanic demonic kind of beings and they're really not. Well, you called it the hellbound heart, you know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's in the original script. I mean, I think Clive Barker himself has, you know, some confusion about what that is. And maybe that's intentional, you know? I do. I will say at the end of the day, I feel like I feel like Hellraiser should have been a one off kind of movie. I mean, at the end of the day, for these people outside of the narrative in some of these instances, pain and or pleasure is in the eye of the beholder. That's true. I don't know. We'll have to test that. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) But I was right, though, right? Um, About the, the Cenobites dying and the audience thinking Penhead was dead. Yeah, I mean, it looks it looks like that, you know. So I mean, because when they revert back to their human form, you feel like they're, that's that's the end of it, right? Yeah. And like we talked about a little earlier, I feel like they really intended Julia to be a the main villain, but even by the end of this movie, she seems to be gone. I kind of feel like this was supposed to be like the end of the story, maybe. I wonder if that altar coming out of the mattress at the very end of the movie was supposed to be symbolic of the Cenobites coming back. I mean, that would be a really good explanation for it. I think it. pieces of them were on it. Yeah. And then that would set up the third movie better when he's literally stuck in that one of those altars. But none of those other Cenobites come back. I don't fucking know. He's the only one. You know what it's I mean? Just, it's, like, it's not making much sense. I mean, I mean, it's okay, though. Yeah. Also, why were those two moving men? There were... Okay. <laughs> just give me a minute. There were boxes all up in that house. Like, someone came and boxed up all the belongings, but they left the bloody mattress on the ground. You know, and so the guys like stumble across and they're like, oh, what's this? There's a random bloody mattress. Who boxed up that house and left the mattress on the ground? These questions can't be answered, Robert. I mean, but why? I can suspend my disbelief very easily. But I'm like, if I'm packing up a house, that's the first thing I'd get rid of is that fucking bloody mattress. And maybe it's in the terms and conditions of like Joe's moving company. You know, like we do not move bloody mattresses, you know, <laughs> we just get pulled into them. Well, move your maggots yeah. and your dead bodies, but not your mattresses. I hope your fun facts have nothing to do with maggots. Hopefully not. I don't remember, but I have two of them. (laughs) Okay. So one, Julia, of course, played by Claire Higgins, was originally supposed to rise from the mattress as the queen of hell at the end of the movie. The theory being that she would be the series continuing character. But Pinhead continued to be the most popular character among the public. So this idea was abandoned. I mean, he is a likable villain. Because if you think about it, like this movie came out like a year before, right? Hellraiser came out a year before this Mm -hmm. came out. Barely, right? And so they're still dealing with, like, the evolving pop culture that's surrounding this. He wasn't yet an icon officially, probably. No. You know, so they're like, they're going to set this other thing up, you know, to be a continuing thing. But it's just, that's not what the public wanted, you know. Obviously, Pinhead was the icon. So they almost had a season of the witch moment if they would have made a third movie with Julia. Mm -hmm. And then they would have been like, oh, we did that wrong. 
And then the fourth one would have had Pin- Pinhead come back. Right? Yeah, but Leslie's another witch because she's still part of that story. It's right. You know? You're right. It's true. Yeah. So for my second one, this film, along with Titanic from 1997, holds the record for the most times two characters repeat each other's names. <laughs> Tiffany, Kirsty, <laughs> Tiffany, Kirsty. <laughs> oh my fucking God. Jack. I'm flying, Jack. <laughs> Kirsty. Rose. Jack. <laughs> Kirsty. Tiffany. Not even just that. This movie feels so repetitive in its dialogue. You know what I mean? I feel like people are saying things over and over again in this movie, not just names. So, yeah, that's funny. That's funny as shit. <laughs> but we have some questions to ask about Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. And we're going to start with, what does your Cenobite look like, Chris? What does my Cenobite look like? Like mm-hmm. my version? Yeah. If you were a Cenobite. Hmm. A Slinky. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Your head's a Slinky? <laughs> no, my body's a Slinky and my arms are Slinky. It's coming off of the main Slinky. <laughs> but my head's normal. <laughs> oh, I would pay money to see that, actually. And then I go down the stairs. <laughs> I'm for the stairs part of the labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> to have the most fun. No, seriously. Were you scared while watching Hellraiser 2? Oh, fuck no. No. Yeah, this movie's not frightening to me. It's also far less gross than the original one, which I think, like, leads something to its scariness. This one doesn't really have that many gross-out moments to it. I have to say, though, the the, the makeup effects were still spot on. Just yes. really, really good, especially with the skinless uh, Claire Higgins. Yeah, they, they really do that. make it look, like, sort of, like, moist- you know what I mean? And, oh, yeah. Like, you kiss her and there'd be blood. I mean, like, she's constantly dripping. And they must be hosing her down between takes, like, constantly with, like, this fake fucking caro syrup or whatever the fuck. Yeah, because it was dripping. And that scene where they're, like, wrapping her with bandages and whatnot. Yeah, it would bleed would, through as she's wrapping. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it looked real. And so, like, that's pretty amazing. Although, yeah. not not scary. I wasn't really frightened in this movie. Yeah. Um, Out of five stars, what would you rate Hellraiser 2? I believe I give it a three. I also gave it three stars. Sort of middle of the road. I mean... The omission's there. The execution's less than even the first one, yeah. you know? Uh, it's less of a classic than the first one. But, I mean, if you were to... Like I said, I think last week, like, you can really think of these as one movie. Because yes. it starts right after the, the last one. I, I love a supercut where that stupid, like, exposition of the first five minutes of the movie... It was cut out. Just showing scenes from the first one mm-hmm. was cut out. Because I think that would be kind of interesting to see, like, a full, like... You know, still probably be like two hours. <laughs> I I mean, like, I was watching this movie and I'm thinking, like, what the fuck is going on? You know, like, these are some weird choices that they made while making it. And obviously, like, there's story behind that. But ultimately, I find it to be very campy and fun. And I, I like horror movies like yeah. that. So I, I have a good time watching it. I just don't think that I would watch it very often. No. So, so uh, who's the hottest guy in Hellraiser 2? My God, is it still Frank? <laughs> In the flashback scenes? <laughs> I don't know. I would. I almost say Kyle. Dr. Kyle? No, he was fleshed in hell. It was an illusion that he was oh, fleshed. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, Frank. Frank is much hotter than Kyle, for sure. Yeah. Kyle's a little too yeah. goofy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Also, if someone came in and said, hi, I'm Dr. Kyle, I'd have been like, can I have someone else, please? Yeah, I think he's still Frank. Yeah, Frank. Frank for the win. Sweaty, shirtless. Puzzle holding Frank. 
Yeah. Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Hellraiser 2. We'd like to know what you think about the movie, if you've seen it, uh, and our conversation about it. Head over to social media at The Film Flamers, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Also, you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com, or better yet, call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Make my suffering legendary. Come to mama. (laughs) Come to mama. (laughs) Tiffany. (laughs) Kirsty. Kirsty and Tiffany are waiting on the line. (laughs) They'll solve your puzzle box. (laughs) Jesus. This is my favorite part of our episode sometimes. Well, that also wraps up our content on the main feed here for February, but we have a bonus episode coming out over on patreon.com slash the film flamers where our patrons voted and we are talking about Bloodline. Hellraiser 4 Bloodline. Also, guys, we need those reviews over on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Head over there, leave us a five-star review, and we will read that on the next Shooting the Flames. It's been a while, guys, so we really appreciate a new one. Yes. The last one's from last year. That's right. You could still be the first person to give us a review in 2022. It's a good claim to fame. It is. In March, like always, we're talking zombies. And we're going to be finishing up George A. Romero's Dead series by talking about Land of the Dead, Survival of the Dead, and Diary of the Dead. Yikes. It's a lot of dead. Yeah, it is. And none of the good ones. I know. Stay tuned for that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Chris, let's go off and traipse through the labyrinth of BDSM, shall we? What does that look like? Hooks, mostly. Is there an altar? Yes. Is there a killer evening dress? (laughs) I'm sure you have one. Is there a slut slaughter? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, let's go have some sweet dreams. (laughs) Whatever slut slaughter is coming. I'll tear your slut apart. (laughs) Oh my God. Jesus. You have anything to say for that?